Welcome to episode nine of the Various and Sundry podcast. I am your host, Matt Harmon, joined in studio as always by my good friend, my go-to guy for Mets baseball, mm-hmm. women's soccer, <laughs> and the coronavirus, John Sloat. Matt, how's it going? It's going well. It's going well. Welcome to uh, Super Tuesday. We're Super Tuesday. On Tuesday morning of Super Tuesday. So not that we're a political podcast, but it's... And vote. not that where we live votes on Super Tuesday Correct. either, but yeah, lots of states we're, do. We're very much in a non-voting uh, state here when it comes to Super Tuesday. I don't even know when the Indiana primary is. It's I don't know. like it's, in May. Isn't it's it? usually it's like, so late. It just meaning it's isn't of any consequence. In yeah. terms of, yeah, the nomination. So in any case, we appreciate you uh, tuning in to the Various and Sundry podcast. You can always check in with us on Twitter at V and S pod and we appreciate we we had a listener ask us a question on Twitter this past week that we yeah a little sarcastic question well, you know yes yeah. hey we we kind of we kind of deal in sarcasm and snark a little bit around here so it's yeah I'd it, say so it's part of our idiom also you can email the podcast various and sundry podcast at gmail dot com and so as we as we start <clears throat> we need to do our coronavirus update I, and I, I will point out. We have been on the cutting edge of this story. We were talking about coronavirus before the national news Way media Way before was. the national yeah. news media got in front of this. We we were your go-to source for coronavirus updates. And so, John, fill us in on where we stand today. Yeah, uh, coronavirus is spreading uh, throughout Europe uh, pretty insanely, I'd say. Uh, it's hit Italy, France, Germany— uh, pretty pretty hard uh, recently, and it's uh, creeping into Spain even. Yes. Uh, one of the interesting things I saw this week is South Korea has created Corona check drive-throughs. Have you seen <laughs> no, these? I didn't. The the South Korean government has set up these places where people can drive through, and people in hazmat suits will test them for coronavirus, and they've checked over a hundred thousand people. Wow. Uh, just using this drive-through method. <laughs> Uh, and I've seen some Americans upset sarcastically saying, we're the country of drive through and uh, wow. and also saying, could you imagine a drive through where you could get healthier? Yeah. Yeah. That's that's not very common. Yeah. Here. So, But and, that's your coronavirus update. Uh, well, what about the United States? Community spread has begun in Seattle, at least, or in, in Washington State area, and maybe even California. So it's, uh, it's coming. Um, my, How concerned should I be about this, John? Well, the lovely part about living in the state of Indiana is people don't le- usually leave the state of Indiana. Um, so, uh, be careful about offending our largest listener base. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that you know, I was talking to my dad this week, and he mentioned that uh, they live in Tampa, and he mentioned that they have a couple of cases, and the whole town's going crazy. Yeah, and I said, "Yeah, we don't have any in Indiana yet." And his response was, "People don't visit Indiana." That was wow. his response. Yeah. Okay. Typical elitist East Coaster, right? Yeah, yeah, that's us. <laughs> Typical elite East Coast. That's what the slopes yep. traffic in. Yep, that's who we are. East Coast elitism, exactly. So, in any case, uh, you know, I I think there are some reasonable precautions to take, but I I, I have to feel like that this is a bit overhyped in terms of when you consider the actual numbers compared to say how many people die of the flu every year. You know, like I think there's reasonable precautions to take. I mean, it's always good advice to wash your hands. Sure, absolutely. But I think the media can play a role in overblowing the uh, 
extent sure. and the like, oh, this is the global apocalypse right now. We've reached the, you know, we've reached the end and everyone's going to, you know, a third of the world's population is going to die off in the coronavirus epidemic and or a pandemic. Is that what we're calling it now? I, I don't know the terminology. Yeah, yeah. So I actually did research on this. Uh, <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> um, there's a big difference between the words epidemic and pandemic, and they're not levels necessarily. Okay. okay. But they have to do with, uh, epidemic has to do with like the spread in an area, and pandemic has to do with how far reaching it is. I see. Uh, geographically speaking. So you could tease that back to the Greek prepositions that are in front of the word demic there, right? The pan being all, right? And then the epi meaning upon, you know, concentrated outbreak there. See, we, you're not going to get that kind of analysis anywhere else. (laughs) You you are not going to find that kind of coronavirus analysis anywhere else. Speaking of something you're not going to find anywhere else, which is actually probably not true because there'll be a million Probably not true at all. Yeah. But we are doing our first true uh, listener participation activity. Wouldn't you call it this? It's fair to say? Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly not forced by any means. No, not no, a forced participation no. activity. But we are going to uh, have a March Madness bracket challenge pool thing. Yeah. So whether, uh, whether or not you love sports or whether or not you don't care at all, uh, log on, fill out a bracket, be a part of this. And, you know, whether you choose by your deep analysis of the teams or whether you choose by jersey color, yes. uh, we want you to be a part of this. We want to see how well you do. Uh, and uh, and we're going to have a giveaway. And one of those things is going to be, one of the giveaways or the giveaway is going to be Doc's, uh, one of Doc's books. Yeah, yeah. So for the winner, uh, we will go ahead and send you a signed copy of one of my books. And we, wow. can, we, we can even discuss which book that might be if you say, well, maybe I already have asking the right questions. Can I get a Philippians commentary? Can I get one of your dissertations? We might have to talk more about that. That's a pretty, yeah, the dissertation's that's a an, pricey an ticket. Uh, but uh, I've got some of those laying around. The okay. studies in the Pauline epistles. You've got, you've got some options here that we can probably discuss. But I, I do want to encourage people who— may not be necessarily the uh, the most sports savvy. Often we find that people who are in that category can do even better than people who actually pay attention to college basketball on a regular basis. Yeah, they, they tend to do pretty, pretty well because, particularly this year, because it's a crapshoot. It's absolutely wide open. Yeah. Absolutely wide open. Any, so anybody could win this thing. You yeah. want to give the information on how they can find this? Because we'll tweet this out and we'll, we'll make yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So all this information will be in the show notes as well. Uh, but if you just go on Yahoo, go to their fantasy page and search for our bracket uh, or our, our group, Various and Sundry Podcast. Uh, and then the password is just Grace Seminary, all one word, all lowercase letters. Uh, so that'll get you in. And then when the brackets come out, when do the brackets come out? So Selection Sunday is, let's see, we're recording on a Tuesday. It was two weeks from this past Sunday. So that was, what, the first? So I guess that'd be the 15th, I believe, is Selection Sunday. So you have some time, but log in, join, uh, and we will begin. Uh, we, we will keep you up to date Absolutely. as when you need to fill out that bracket. Absolutely. And, uh, Give it, tell, tell it to your friends and family. We'd love to see them participate. Yeah, it'd be great to, to get a large number of uh, participants in this. And, you know, bragging rights and a free book are on the line. So why not, right? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So, well, in addition to uh, that, I'm not sure there's really that much else going on that we want to 
hit on in terms of the world of sports. Do you want to give us it's, our uh, spring training update for? It's a it's a well. I'm just going to give you the Mets spring training update. Okay. Um, it's a slow time in sports. Spring training has begun, but the games don't really count, and you only see the stars for a couple of innings. You know, uh, the Mets uh, haven't reported any injuries, uh, okay. which is lovely. Okay, uh, and we're hearing. Uh, the weirdest news stories come out of spring training where the players get interviewed more regularly. They're sure. a little bit more laid back. So it came out that the Mets last year during their uh, incredible run in the second half, uh, some of the key players were getting together late at night and just eating cookies together and talking baseball. <laughs> okay. And so these four or five guys were getting together and, and just downing boxes of cookies and just talking about playing the game and doing these different things. And, and all the media is just, all the New York media is just going, oh my gosh, look how close they are. This is a team, you know, and, and okay. saying like, look how, look how well they're going to do. Uh, and how does that play with your uh, firm conviction that sugar is the devil? Because obviously that would be a high yeah. sugar intake there. Does it, does it cause conflict in you to embrace this sort of team unity around? Yeah, uh, when it comes to sugar consumption, I'm a pluralist. So and anybody and everyone can consume the amount of sugar that they want, whatever, however their convictions lead them. But uh, so I apply that to the Mets uh, as well. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, no injuries to speak of from Mets uh, camp just yet, uh, which is a good, good thing. There's some trade rumors going around right now, uh, particularly with the Yankees, which is disturbing uh, to me that if we trade with the Yankees, I don't really want to make a... That would really be making a deal with the devil. Yeah, there you go. I don't want to do that. Um, but other than that, uh, yeah, it's been a good spring training, which is no news or dumb news is good news. Sure. Now, I, I will say, even though I don't follow baseball very closely, I have heard a couple of things coming out of spring training that have it piqued my curiosity, at least. Okay, let me know what they are. One of them is... The high rate of Astros players getting plunked by pitchers. Yeah. And clearly that's going to continue, at least through the um, through the uh, spring training. I'll be curious to see how that develops into the regular season and whether Major League Baseball steps in and says, look. Don't do it. If you do it, you're tossed immediately. And the second story is, is related. Trevor Bauer. Have you heard this story? Trevor yes, Bauer. Yes, I saw for, this this morning. <laughs> form, this is fantastic. Former Indians pitcher. I, I can't remember who he's pitching with now. Is he with the Reds? Could be. I don't yeah. remember. But his his way to sort of uh, throw shade at the Astros is he is, in the words of Chris Traeger, literally <laughs> telling the batter at the plate what pitch he's going to throw. Yeah. <laughs> he's telling the batter, I'm going yes. to throw a fastball, and then throws it. Uh, on the on the Astros piece, uh, there is a Twitter account that is dedicated to just replaying images of them. I think it's like Astros Shame Tour. Okay. And it, it gives a daily account of how many times they were hit by a pitch. <laughs> That's great. Which is fantastic. That's great. But yes, I saw Trevor Bauer does some sort of hand signal to let them yeah, know like this is a fastball coming. coming. Yep. <laughs> That's great. That's a great way for a pitcher to throw I, shade at them. I love it. In a yeah. meaningless game, yeah. right? I mean, I mean... the especially for an established pitcher like Trevor Bauer, he's not fighting for a roster spot. And so, you know, he's getting some work in, getting the arm loose. So if Trevor Bauer is going to throw at somebody, what hand <laughs> sign is he going to give? Um, I would think typically, I mean, obviously a fastball is easier to steer, right? Sure. But, you know, you throw a breaking ball at somebody, less chance of injury. You throw a breaking ball into somebody's 
back or rib cage. And it, you know, by comparison, doesn't really hurt. Yeah. I guess the good news for Jose Altuve is he's so small, he's going to be difficult to hit this season. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hope he worked on his agility in the offseason because yeah. he's going to need to dodge some pitches. In any case, that's their occupation. And so as we transition to our topic wow. for the day, uh, we are going to follow up on our conversation from the previous episode on work. So we covered some aspects of the the topic of work, how we're to think about it, the dangers of it becoming an idol, and also even thinking a little bit about some of the generational differences we uh, have Observe. observed, I yeah. think is probably a fair way to put it. And so as we reflected on on that subject, we thought maybe there was more we could talk about. So we've decided to go with a part two here. Yeah. Why not, right? So do, do you want to give a quick breakdown of, my goodness, here's sort of the thousand foot view, maybe in a minute or two of our, our conversation from last week as far as, as work. Like how does that connect to the garden, those sure. sorts of things? Yeah. So uh, you're, you're testing my memory here, but... Uh, <laughs> We, Nothing like putting you on the spot, right. huh? We, we, we did discuss uh, the the goodness of work, how work has its roots in the garden, uh, related to God's original commission of humanity, both in Genesis 1 with sort of a more royal dimension to it of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule over and subdue it, that there's an aspect of stewardship there, of, of uh, expanding the, the scope of the garden in terms of uh, ruling over it, caring for it. In essence, exercising God's own rule over creation itself in a sort of royal capacity. And then Genesis 2 brings along another angle where there's more of a priestly connotation there of human beings are priests who mediate God's presence and mm. protect the purity of God's sanctuary. So if you think of Eden as God's sanctuary where he dwells with humanity, Part of the work of Adam and Eve was to protect the purity of that sanctuary and to be conduits of God's uh, presence and grace and mercy and power on earth throughout creation. And of course, that means that work is inherently good. Work is a good thing that God made. It's Mm. not a result of the fall. What's the result of the fall in Genesis 3 is the hardship connected with work, the frustration, the difficulties, the lack of resources necessary to accomplish that work. All the things that make work difficult are a result of the fall. And then we talked about how at the end in the new heavens and the new earth, we will work. We will have work to do, but all the frustrations that make work difficult will be removed. And so we will find the the appropriate level of satisfaction and contentment in that work without making it an idol. And part of that was that the garden is the garden having boundaries, and we see new heavens, new earth mm-hmm. is uh, b- b- being much larger. Uh, sure. We we are meant to expand that, taking the raw materials of creation and using them uh, in order to create essentially more garden, to create more Eden, to create more shalom, peace, whatever, whatever you want to call it. As we extend the garden, yeah. And in the new heavens and new earth, the uh, that. That process is, it seems at least, that there's no real expansion work at that point because really the picture seems to be that all of the new creation is where God dwells with his people and there's no hint of impurity or anything like that. So, 
And that's lovely to talk about. Like, like that's very inspiring. Like, I, I love a good, mm, my goodness, let's look at the garden in Genesis and mm-hmm. let's look at the, the, the new heavens, new earth in Revelation. But how do we connect that to our everyday work? How do we connect that to, uh, you know, the, the, the plumber or, or to the farmer or to maybe the farmer's a little bit easier, but, uh, you, you know, to, to regular everyday vocations and jobs? Sure. I think that uh, when, when that question comes to mind, there, there are a couple of texts that, that I go to besides, you know, we've already talked about Genesis 1 and 2, and uh, I'll, I'll go with, I'll start with this one. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, the idea of whatever you do, uh, do it to the glory of God. Whether you eat or whether you drink, you do it to the glory of God. And in the context, that's specifically towards an issue that the church in Corinth is dealing with. But there's very much a sense in which whatever God calls us to do, we're to do it for His glory, mm. to draw attention to His uh, to His character, to His attributes, and to be an expression of that. And so that applies even to the everyday work that we have, no matter what our occupation is, that there's a sense in which God calls us to do it, and I would make an extension of this as the idea of excellence, to pursue excellence hmm. in what we do as a reflection of God's own character, so that whether it's uh, working on a road construction crew, whether it's uh, serving as a nurse in a hospital, whether it's being a receptionist at, a, at an office, whatever context God has placed you in in work, the idea is that part of what he calls you to do is to do it to the best of your ability and do so in a way that demonstrates a, a, an attribute of God, of God pursuing uh, excellence. So that's one element there. There's more, but I don't want to steal any thunder you might have. What, what about you? Any, any texts or kind of theological principles that help guide some more of the specifics of everyday work for you? Yeah, no. The the excellence piece is a, is a big one for me personally as as I as I work through my my day to day. In fact, I, I I recently heard of a discipline in a book called uh, The Common Rule, where he uh, this individual uh, wakes up every morning and, and prays that he will have uh, basically the gusto to build God's kingdom. Uh, he then stops in the middle of his work in the middle of the day and gets mm-hmm. on his knees and prays for God to to. Uh, allow him to view his work not as uh, something that's building his brand or, or uh, uh, his own personal life, but uh, is something that uh, he does ultimately to God's glory. Right in the middle of the day, this this individual is a lawyer, gets down on his knees, mm-hmm. okay. prays that, and then in the evening prays for, Lord, help me to have peace that I'm not able to do everything, uh, but basically. And so that, that's sort of his ritual, and that's something that here and there I've adopted, um, okay. but, uh, but not, not, not totally. Uh, and then... Can I, can I follow up on that? Uh, yeah. I, I sense you're going to move on to another one. Before. I, I, I just want to... My follow-up on that is that I think there's a contrasting... Um, I, I, actually, I'll jump off of the, uh, the last thing you said there, is that part of what I think helps keep excellence from turning into a sort of uh, type A overdriven kind of personality, which the pursuit of excellence can easily lead to, is that recognition that God is the only one who gets everything done on his to-do list every day. Right. Nobody else does. 
And if you do, you probably don't have a very extensive to-do list. Yeah. <laughs> right? And so I think the pursuit of excellence can easily turn into a sense of performance-based mentality that can lead to frustration because you get to the end of the day and you're like, I didn't get everything done that I wanted to get done today. And then there's that sense of disappointment or frustration. And sometimes I think there's a legitimate piece of that. If you look back and go, well, yeah, I was just lazy. Like I didn't work as hard as I could have, or I was not as efficient as I could have. But oftentimes it's, you know what? I was overly ambitious in what I thought I could get done today. That was unrealistic to begin with. Or I set this out to do, but then someone interrupted it with a real personal need or a real situation that needed my attention. And that was more important than completing the task list on my on my app today. So I think there's some of those dynamics of, of that, that pursuit of excellence is good, but of course can be twisted into you become so performance driven that if you get to the end of the day and you didn't complete your task list, there's this sense of, of uh, disappointment and frustration that leads to some, some sinful attitudes. And that's really the ultimate expression of that is sleep, right? Where, where you and I at the end of the day go, Mm -hmm. I've done what I can time to go to bed. And, And, you know, uh, Sleep is is sort of the great the great um, leveler leveler uh, mechanism of rest. Even mm-hmm. we we could say uh, that God has given us right that that um, we as humans and Keller makes this point really clear in his book uh, is that we as humans are supposed to not just work or not just pursue rest, uh, but are supposed to do those things in rhythm. Yeah, right. There's supposed to be this rhythm of work and rhythm of rest. Uh, and and I I think that's that's an important thing. I think we see that in the creation sure. account, right? Where where God does this work of creation, uh, and then ultimately uh, rest. Um, and I'll make this point again. I think I made it last week that 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 seventh day doesn't end, right? There, yeah. there, there's there's no evening and morning on on that day. Um, and, and so that rest is is I think meant to be eternal uh, at some level. It's supposed to be a picture of what we will one day uh, experience. But, uh, you know, there's supposed to be this back and forth. And, and I hear a lot of teaching on rest. Uh, and it seems to be like, oh, my goodness, we're already the, the assumption is you're so in love with work and doing so much that you absolutely just need to stop. Right. Uh, and, and I think I think there needs to be a balance there that this is something that's done in rhythm. Yeah. And I think I, I'm fascinated with the whole area of of sleep. I've even done a little bit of reading on current research on sleep and that sort of stuff, really? far from being an expert, but it's an mm. area of interest because it is quite fascinating when you think about the fact that God made us in a way that requires sleep, that he built us where we require sleep. And if you think about it, you know, most experts suggest that we as human beings should get around, you know, seven, eight hours of sleep a yeah. day. That's a third of your life. A third of your day is built around this unconsciousness where your body does all sorts of things. And there's lots of different research about, you know, what happens when you sleep, but all the things that, that your brain and your body does to, in one sense, kind of recharge the batteries that is needed. And then when you, when you look at some of the studies, even of sleep deprivation, that uh, it there are worse effects in some ways of extended sleep deprivation than of many sort of uh, addictions to narcotics or other kinds of drugs. Like the effects Mm. can be that bad 
if it's a prolonged, intense deprivation of sleep. So you would rather me do drugs than miss my eight hours? <laughs> that's exactly the takeaway. Okay, okay, that's, that's what exactly I'm hearing. The yeah. <laughs> so I do think that on the as part of this mixture, and this is where I think it, the, the the sleep piece comes in, is on the one hand we pursue excellence, and at the other uh, on the other hand we have to learn to be okay with good enough. Mm-hmm. That there's lots of things you do in life that you think. If I put more time into that or had more resources, I could do it better. But that would mean I'd neglect these other responsibilities, these other tasks, these other contexts where I have responsibilities as well. And so some people can get paralyzed by this. If they sort of take the excellence thing to an extreme, they get paralyzed and can't get to, this is good enough. This is the best I can do with the time and the resources I have. And therefore, I'm okay with that. Hmm. I can, I can, I can honestly say before the Lord, this was the best I could do with what I had. Yeah, the time that's been given to me. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's difficult for some. I knew of a, I knew of a professor, at one of my former schools. I won't name the school or mm. the professor, but tantalizing. He he yeah. was such a perfectionist that he almost never published, and that led him eventually to leave the leave being a professor. Because he'd work on these projects, these book projects, and he'd have them essentially done, but he'd continue to pick at them, just like, oh, I need to tweak that, you know, that that paragraph. I need to uh, tweak that that chapter. Right? Eh, I need to choose. And publishers would understandably be like, we, we need, need a manuscript yeah. from you, and he would be so paralyzed by that like perfectionism that he'd never turn the manuscript in. Hmm. And you know that's not unique necessarily to um, to this academic context. That could be in other contexts where if you're working on a presentation or something, where you can get so consumed with perfectionism that you don't actually finish the job because you're. You, in some ways, I think that comes becomes an identity issue. Your identity becomes so tied to I got to get this perfect. I got to get this just right. So yeah. Oh, could we, could we talk about the other side of the coin a little bit and maybe. Uh, maybe this, um, as a published author, I imagine that you don't struggle with this one quite as much, but but I'm curious to hear your reflections on it. Uh, what about the person that just constantly struggles with, yeah, that's good enough, and and just sort of turns in things haphazardly and or or is constantly doing projects that are that are half done or three quarters done, but are then they just like, eh, struggle, struggle is good enough. I got other things going on that I want to do, or I want to, you know, whatever it may be, uh, video games, whatever it might be. Uh, what What's your, what are some how do we combat that in our in our lives? Yeah, I think that um, that can be tricky, but uh, because so much of that's contextually uh, driven in terms of whether good enough is good enough, right? And so I also think that that's where some of the piece of the the excellence comes back in of wanting to present our work. If you think of even like Romans twelve one and two of of offering our lives as a sacrifice to God. Yeah. That, um, you know, you think of the idea that everything you do at one level is an offering to God as a sort of sacrifice, as an act of worship. Then I would hope that that would bring in some measure of incentivizing of, I should do this well. I mean, I, I think we've all had those experiences, right, where you know, maybe you've got a project or something you're working on, and maybe it's just for yourself. And you're like, I think that's good enough. 
And at the end of the day, you're like, well, if I'd have spent more time, maybe I should have, but eh, it's no big deal. But if you're doing that same thing for someone like a an authority figure or maybe a loved one or something where it's like, oh, suddenly you maybe kick it up a notch of, you know, maybe this, like a, like a project around the house, right? Maybe if it's your own house, you're like, that's good enough. Yeah. But if you're doing it for a friend or for a family member, you might take that extra step of like, well, if this was my own house, maybe I wouldn't do all those little minor finishing touches. Maybe I'd just let that little little spot go or something. But if it's someone that you really care to impress or that that is super important to you, you might go the extra step and be like, no, I really need to, to spend the extra time necessary to finish off those rough edges and, and make it excellent. Yeah. Um, part of this conversation as we think about work uh, is efficiency, productivity. Uh, those areas tend to be big things, particularly when we talk about office work like, like you and I do. Um, what, are some, what are some ways that you go about efficiency or productivity uh, that, that might or may not be helpful to some of our listeners? Sure. I think that when it comes to these areas, of course, there, there can be the danger of idolatry, to be sure, that going back to that sort of performance-driven mentality that you get too much of your significance or meaning or identity from, I'm a guy that gets things done. Yeah. Or, you know, and, and you know, I, I struggle with this because I, I can tend to be pretty performance-oriented to the point where, and this is this is sort of confession time here. I'm sure there are other people who do this. I don't think you do this necessarily. Maybe you do. I don't know. But I'm the kind of person who occasionally, not all the time, but occasionally, will put things on my to-do list that I've already done just, just so I can mark check them off. Them off. <laughs> I have done that before in busy seasons. Yeah. Just, just to get some momentum going on exactly. getting the to-do list. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I'm sure there are some listeners who are like, that's really demented. <laughs> but you got a problem. Yeah. Well, maybe, probably. But uh, I do think that there can be a value in uh, thinking about productivity and efficiency because if you if you embrace some of the things that make you more productive and help you to get things done more efficiently, oftentimes it expands the scope of what you can do. Mm-hmm. And if you understand it in those in those terms, if I'm more efficient, if I find ways to get things done, especially things that are necessary but not the most exciting or the most um, you know broadly helpful to people, if I find ways to get some of the smaller tasks in life done, the necessary things, maybe it's responding to emails or maybe it's just doing paperwork or some of the administrative pieces of life. If there are more efficient ways to do that, that frees up more time for me to either invest it in other tasks that are in some ways more significant, or it might free up more time for me to in, to interact with and build relationships with other people that I wouldn't otherwise hmm. have. So I do think there's a biblical case to be made for efficiency and productivity and, and looking at some of those uh, sort of tools of the trade. I mean, you know, there's the, you know, was the Stephen Covey, the seven habits of highly effective people. There's, uh, there's some other, you know, very prominent. Kind have you of, gone through that? Have you gone? Through I that? haven't. I no. haven't either. No, for, for a lot of those things, I will, 
I will occasionally skim some of those materials. I'm yeah. like, what? Well, let's see quickly anything I can glean from this. Look oh, at the chapter what, titles, figure yeah. out what them are, and kind of kind of fill your own meaning in. Yeah, sure. But I do think that probably the biggest productivity tip that that I have that's been helpful to me is on Sundays at some point, whether it's in the afternoon or the evening, I try to take about anywhere between 15 to, to 20 minutes and look at my calendar for that week and look at the, the task list that I've got as to what is on the horizon and what needs to get done so that I have a, a plan of attack so that I'm not coming in Monday morning and then trying to figure out, okay, how do I best spend my time today? When do I do these tasks? When do I do this? How do I manage it? If I have a good sense on Sunday of what the week looks like, yeah. I tend to be more effective and more more productive in that context. What about you? Um, yeah, probably the biggest thing I do right now is uh, I have a pretty I'm great control of my schedule for the most part. So I really try to schedule things that require my energy um, and attention and my creative forces. And I try to schedule those during those times where, I'll, where I try to schedule my biggest projects during those times. Emails. And are you a morning person or an afternoon or an evening person when I'm, it comes I'm to a, those I'm a things? morning person for those okay. things. So uh, the earlier I can get up, the, the better usually. And, okay. and I'm able to tackle writing or, you know, uh, uh, projects more, more easily during sure. the morning. And then afternoon is usually like, my goodness, I'm just sucking coffee and, uh, <laughs> trying to, yeah. trying to, trying to, uh, get emails done and those sorts of getting, getting more, uh, just mindless tasks done. And usually I'll throw on sports radio during that time or something like that as something to keep, keep my brain engaged in something, uh, while I'm doing meaningless tasks. Maybe mindless tasks. You don't mean meaningless tasks. Sorry. Yes. Mindless tasks. There you go. Okay. Yes. Emails are important. <laughs> yes. As we encourage people to email the show. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Give, give John something to do while he's listening to sports radio in the afternoons. That, that's, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, uh, we made a couple of recommendations uh, in terms of books last week, more on the sort of broader topic of of work we we mentioned a book by uh, Jim Hamilton and a book by Tim Keller and those are really big picture yeah. uh, Keller Keller's gets into even different fields and how he connects that work sure. to God's work which is really helpful um, I've read one of the two books on our list here I've not read the second one so could I talk about the first one real quick go for it yeah uh, Matt Perman who who used to oversee uh, the desiring God website uh, John Piper's ministry yes uh, put out a book goodness probably five or six years ago now yeah, at least. Uh, called What's Best Next, and it was about his uh, system for productivity. Mm-hmm. And he was, as, as you read the book, you're kind of like, oh, my goodness, this guy is just incredibly productive. Uh, right. And uh, so that was a very helpful piece is like, okay, here's here's how he's productive. Oh, I can incorporate that. I really mm-hmm. can't incorporate this. And you go sure. chapter by chapter. Very, very helpful. And and I will add, what what distinguishes that book from a lot of other productivity books is maybe the first third of it is very much a sort of theological foundation for thinking about productivity. Yeah. So it's not just, here's five tips. Here's tips and tricks. Yeah. It's very much rooted. It it sets a good sort of biblical and theological foundation so that it's trying to avoid some of the errors we've talked about in terms of being so performance-driven, you find too much meaning and significance in that, or, you know, the other end being lazy. It's It's a good sort of theological foundation from which those very practical suggestions flow out of. 
The second book is a book by Cal Newport called Deep Work. Have you heard of this book? I have. I have. I have not read it. Okay. I've read it, and basically he simply makes the case for we think we're multitasking and being more productive, but oftentimes we're not. Yeah. That that really multitasking is not multitasking. It's just rapidly switching between more than one task. And that that can be fine for certain contexts to be sure. But the downside of it is, is that it 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 inhibits our ability to do deep, sustained thinking and uh, work. And so as a result, the level of our work, if we're not focused on trying to remove distractions and really focus on one task at a time is that both the quality and the depth of our work regularly suffers. Now, when it comes to certain tasks, you probably don't need to go the deep work route, right? You don't need to necessarily remove all distractions to answer a lot of emails, right? Email tends to be a task that you can often do while other things are going on. But if you're in in, in the kind of work where you need to produce something that is more thoughtful and more focused. He, he really makes a big point of you can get a lot more done in focused. You know, if you, if you have blocks of an hour or two where you completely remove all distractions, and I, that, that means like no checking email during that time, phone not in the room with you, like completely locked into whatever you're doing, whether it's reading, whether it's writing, whether it's working on a project or something, that the payoff in terms of productivity is significant, that you can get way more done and at a better quality in an hour that way than you can often get done in two or three with the sort of multitask, work on this for 15 minutes, I checked my email, now I'm checking Twitter. Next thing you know, you blew 20 minutes before you're back to the task and you've lost your train of thought. So that's a helpful book. Okay. Um, yeah, I know, uh, I know I have a friend that just started his THM program, uh, at another institution and, um, this deep work is one of the books they had to read for that. That's good. That's good. Well, we're on to our athlete as we move towards the end here. And, uh, we had, I think we have a decent collection of options here. You know, the number nine has, uh, has served well. Yeah. Uh, Gordy Howe, of course, the, the hockey player. Yeah, and Bobby Hull. Bobby so, Hull. You know, giving a nod to hockey, not that either of us really follows it very closely. Yeah, I've, I followed it when I was in college and high school more, but less so recently. Uh, living outside the Pittsburgh area has caused me to uh, to not follow it quite as much. Okay. Uh, in the baseball realm, Joe DiMaggio, Reggie Jackson, uh, Roger Maris, Ted Williams, uh, all, all come to mind in our on our <laughs> list of athletes to talk about. Yeah, and then uh, when we go to the NFL— Drew Brees. Drew Brees, yeah. Which it can seem in some ways interesting to talk about where he fits in the all-time scheme of things when it comes to NFL quarterbacks. Yeah, he's a fascinating case, isn't he? Because he's put up these absurd numbers, but he's also done it in an era where that's been more prominent. He's got one Super Bowl win, and uh, yeah, and seems like, as far, as far as I can tell, a, a, an outstanding dude. Like, seems to be very active in his community and has, has avoided scandal, as far as I can. I, I listened to an f- interview with him, and he was on uh, the phone, and he's on his front porch. And he's talking about being on his front porch <laughs> on this interview. And in the middle of being on his front porch, a runner comes in front of him and just shouts, 
go Saints or something like that. And he shouts go Saints back to, to this run. And so yeah. it just kind of gave the the feeling that he was just part of the community down yeah. in New Orleans. And he's he's a semi-local guy in terms of he went to college at Purdue, which is yeah. you know not too far away from our uh, world headquarters here on the various sundry <laughs> <laughs> podcasts. Wow, world headquarters. And uh, when it comes to Ohio State athletes, David Boston, you recognize that name, was a wide receiver for All Ohio State. Like first-team gym guy, right? I mean, he was just a— He was jacked. He was huge, yeah. <laughs> he was. But we haven't named the athlete that I think we're going to go with here, right? Yeah, I'm excited about this one. Well, it, it's 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 your show. Yeah, I think we're going to name the episode, and by I think I mean I think we we, we definitely are. Uh, Mia Hamm. Yes. So uh, was a part of the first professional women's sports league, won a World Cup, uh, was a part of several Olympics, was a soccer icon in our country for a period, and of course, what she's maybe most famous for. Uh, marrying Noma Gassiapara. <laughs> no. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, um, I, I might push back on that as being most well-known for that. <laughs> I, I, You're I, right. Probably soccer, soccer icon is probably, yeah. probably top. Yeah. She was definitely responsible for uh, a major part of the surge in interest in women's soccer here in the United States and even worldwide, I think you can say. And, and I would say to a certain extent, like the, the soccer movement in America was re, was really done by the women's national team in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, I can think of, uh, we even talked about it before, two, three players from that 99 World Cup team. Mm-hmm. Can you name any male soccer players from the 90s? No, uh, but American soccer has not. American men's soccer has not been has, strong. Has not been has not been great. I mean, they've had moments, they've had flashes, but women's soccer, and it really began right here with Mia Mia Hamm. Um, and right. so, uh, this is uh, the Mia Hamm episode. Okay, all right. So there it is, and hence my reference earlier in the show to my go-to guy for women's soccer. So, all right, one thing you liked this week. Yeah, I've really been enjoying uh, a British podcast called Ask N.T. Write Anything, uh, and uh, that's hosted by uh, Justin Briley, who's a phenomenal, phenomenal interviewer. Um, and I, th- I, th- I think really good interviewers have a uh, don't just get the information necessary out of yep. out of somebody, but get down into the to the personal weeds of a person. And uh, this happens on this podcast where you get to see a little bit behind the curtain of what N.T. Wright is like, uh, yeah. as well as the depth of his knowledge and wisdom and uh yeah so you, you'll listen to him talk about how much he loves to golf or sometimes he whips yeah. out the guitar and plays it on the uh <laughs> that's great on the air so so you get to see a little bit of nt Wright, which i thought was i thought was great yeah that's good one of my favorite memories from uh being a phd student was having breakfast with nt Wright and doug moo oh really yeah that was fascinating really how how <laughs> tall is nt because doug moo is very tall very tall yes how tall is nt Wright? um he's a big guy he's he's thick but uh Tom Wright is not um, not not an especially tall man. I, I think he's probably five ten to six foot is my guess. Okay. <laughs> there's a loud noise going on that we need to tell her. There's a loud rumbling. I hope it doesn't make the audio recording. I, that sounds like some sort of maintenance. It is spring break around here. It is so. spring break on campus, and so. <laughs> Oh my goodness, that sounds like somebody's drilling for oil outside or something. <laughs> well, let's hope they find it. Anyway, what was the one thing you liked uh, this week? So I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with a podcast as well. It's called Bomber. Bomber? I haven't heard of this. So it's a, I want to say it's eight or nine episodes. So it's not a long one. 
but it's the story of a uh, a serial bomber in Austin, Texas, from 2018, mm. who set off a series of package bombs and really uh, terrorized the city of Austin and the surrounding area for a few weeks. Wow. So, I, I don't remember this. I, I really don't remember 2018? it 2018? 2018. Yeah, March 2018 is when uh, this was happening. So about almost exactly two years ago to to this time period. And so, yeah, this, the podcast is called Bomber. And uh, I, I think I'm about episode six so far. I think there's eight or nine total. Thankfully, they caught him relatively quickly, right? I mean, it wasn't a Unabomber situation where you've got him, you know, sending bombs for years. I think wow. it resolved itself okay. within a few weeks. But I think he ended up setting off six or seven bombs in the larger Austin area. I need to get to Austin. They, they're supposed to have one of the greatest coffee scenes in the country down in Austin. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. So maybe a uh, go encounter trip. Yeah, doing a coffee tour throughout America. I love that idea. Yeah, that could be a little pricey. Well, I, I think we probably need to to land the plane because in addition to them drilling for oil, I know there's drums downstairs now. <laughs> so <laughs> indeed, we are in a studio that is right above the uh, worship arts uh, area. So in any case, I think we have managed to accomplish our stated goal of wandering about our various and sundry topics. And so until next time, the Lord bless y'all real good. Later. Later.